and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. If God told you to go ahead and do what he told you to do, but that he wouldn't be with you when you did it, would you still move forward? That was the choice Israel faced when a frustrated God told them to take the promised land without him. Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled Presence, which covers Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 17. Thank you for joining us today. This is uh, my favorite service of the year. And one of the reasons why it's my favorite service, there's multiple reasons uh, in here. For one, I get to see so many former students, whether they are at college now and back home or they've graduated and they're back home visiting family. Um, that's always a great joy. But it's also a great joy because I get to, to the experience of being here in between Christmas and New Year's. And this time in between Christmas and New Year's may be the most miserable time to come to church. You have every reason not to be here. You're exhausted from all of the holiday celebration and you really just want to sleep and (laughs) once again gather some level of strength. And so the fact that you're here is because you've made a specific effort to be here. So you're just far better people for uh, being here. And I, just kidding. Uh, the, the fact you're here, it's, it, is, um, it, it's my favorite, favorite service. It, 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 we get a chance to look back. And by the way, it, it, I've preached this past service for the last four or five years. And if Randy chooses to take me out of this slot, then I'll go on strike and I'll make up all sort of vicious rumors about whoever he puts here in the, in the spot in between. But um, we get a chance to look back at the previous year. What just happened? We get a chance to look back at 2012, what happened in our own personal lives, what happened in the world. We get a chance to evaluate. Many of you keep a journal where you will write down some thoughts and you keep it on from a spiritual journal. You look back at how God has met you this year, um, what you have done, what you have learned. You have a, a series of prayers that you've been praying for and you've seen some answered prayers. Take it out today and just look back and look at the track record of God's faithfulness to you in this particular year but also uses an opportunity to look forward. What do you want in 2013? I mean, really down at your, at your deepest core level of who you are, what do you really want from this year? Do you want more stuff? Nothing wrong with stuff. Do you want more time? Do you want more energy? What do you want to happen in this year that maybe didn't happen the way you wanted it to in 2013? It's the great, for me, the greatest weekend for us to look back and also simultaneously to look forward. It just gives us an excuse when we go from 2012 to 2013 to evaluate. It's another reason why it's my favorite service of the year. I know some of you here would say, look, I'm just here as an invitation of a friend. And I came because my neighbor has been pestering me for the last six months to come to this church called Perimeter. And so I'm here. I'm not even a religious person. I'm not sure I even buy in that there is a God. And so I'm just kind of here checking it out. So don't throw me in with all of that spiritual hullabaloo stuff. Just let me sit. And I'd say, no problem. We're just going to let you sit. What I would offer, though, um, for you is this. Maybe today you leave with only hearing some good music. Maybe you hear a talk. Maybe you meet some new people and you leave thinking nothing differently. That's perfectly fine. That's okay. But I would love to just give you something to munch on. Here's just some food for thought. What I think we're going to sit on this morning is what is at the core of Christianity. This is the hub. This is ultimately what it's about. I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what you've been exposed to. 
If your only view of Christianity is based on your one neighbor and then what you've seen on TV or read in the newspapers, then I assure you, you do not have a favorable impression of Christianity unless your neighbor has been able to overcome that. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But what's at the core, what's at the central part of of, of the essence of Christianity is this notion of grace. And it is God's grace to us. It's when God came and met us in our greatest hour of need and did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. But please hear this. It is not so that you and I might do something for him. He needs nothing. He needs not one thing from us. He just chooses to give and give and give because that's who he is. He's God. He is completely independent in need of anything that's out there. But he made us to know him and to enjoy him. Both of those things come together like this, like two different sides of the coin. He made us to walk with him. In every important relationship that you and I have, is it not true that what we value the most is not necessarily the goodies or the gifts or the blessings of that relationship, but we value something else? Now, there's nothing wrong with goodies. There's nothing wrong with gifts. There's nothing wrong with blessings. In fact, we should enjoy that. This Christmas season gives us a great opportunity to give things to other people to show that we care for them. We value them. We want them around in our lives. We're thinking about them. It's an expression, if you will, to just say, I'm so glad you are. So it's good to give and to receive gifts. It's good to to give time. It's good to do all those things. But is that really what we're after in every important relationship? Or are we after something that is far deeper reaching into the souls, into the very fabric of who we are? I would say that really what we're after is not just a mere want. It's an actual need. What we're really after is the presence of that person in our lives. For those that we love, we will take any day of the week, we will take their presence not P-R-E-N-S-N-T-S. I have fourth grade spelling. It's awful. Not T-S, but C-E. We want their presence. We want to be with them. We just don't want stuff from them. Think about it from a child's perspective. Does he want to go to the Atlanta Zoo alone? Does he want to go with dad? Does a teenager want to go to the movies and dinner alone? Or do you want to use that gift certificate to go to a movie and dinner with your friends? Does a dad really want to go and have season tickets to the Falcons so that he can go alone? Or does he want to go with a child or a buddy or what? What about a wife? Wouldn't it be great to have an unlimited wardrobe of 6,000 square foot house, the car of your dreams, of your choosing, And yet your husband would only be around for three months out of the year? Or would you rather be with him? Don't answer. (laughs) There are those moments in which clearly we would love to be alone just to gather our thoughts. We need need breaks. There's no question about that. (laughs) My dear wife, for some strange reason, she wants to have adult conversation at points during the day. I don't understand that. We've got six children that are all age nine and under. And for some reason, she wants to talk when we get home. And for some strange reason, she wants breaks. She wants to be able to go to the store alone. She's an introverted personality. That's great. But if you ask my wife, would you rather have a life of aloneness? Or would you rather have a chaotic life with a horrible 
administratively challenged husband and six raucous boys. Now she'd rather be with us. I would suggest the same thing holds true in our spiritual pilgrimage with God. We love the blessings from God. We love receiving from God. And we should, we should enjoy the blessings he has given to us. He gave them to us because he loves us. He gives them to us because he wants us to have them. We should receive them with humility and gratefulness and all of that. But at the end of the day, is that thing really what I'm after? Or what I'm really after is his presence. I'm really after his nearness. Say it this way. The blessings of God can never replace the presence of God. Just as the same thing would be true in a human relationship. You say goodbye to your daughter where you send her off to college. It stings. You say goodbye to your son when you send him off to camp for the summer. It, it stings. You say goodbye to your father when you place him into a nursing home. And it stings. The worst of all news, you get a phone call. As your son or daughter or brother or sister or cousin or friend or whomever who's been serving overseas in the military, you get the call that says they have died. There is nothing that stings worse than that. We've said it from the stage before, but it's worth saying again. There is no pain like the pain of separation. What we want the most from God is his presence. And some of us today are the most frustrated we've ever been in our spiritual pilgrimage because where we are right now in life is we see all of the blessings that he's provided. We can point to umpteen things in which we say, yes, this is the Lord's hand. This is the Lord's hand. This is the Lord's hand. We can see all of that, but we just don't sense his nearness. And we're frustrated and we can't articulate it, but it's there. Are you there? Today, do you sense his nearness in your life? Do you sense that he is walking with you, that you are on a pilgrimage, a journey with him? Or or do you sense that you're just spinning your wheels, you're trying, you see evidence of him around you, you see good things that are happening, but you just don't know that he's with you. If that's where you are, why do you think you're there? Most of us will very quickly go to, well, it's my own fault. It's because of sin in my life. Because of the things that I do and it's the things that I don't do. It's the things that I say and it's the things that I don't say. It's the things that I want. It's the things that I don't want. It's the motives. We, we, we start right there. And what I'm here today to tell you is this. You may not sense his presence. You may not feel his presence to the degree that you want to right now. But he's there. And he's not there because of you. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be reading lots of scripture this morning. And in many ways, it will speak for itself. It will require very little uh, uh, thought from, uh, from me to come in. There will be a few thoughts I'll interject uh, here and there. But the story will, will, will speak for itself. Just to get a little bit of context for you. God has taken his people supernaturally, sovereignly, in miraculous ways out of the land of slavery and into freedom. Now, the reason he's doing this, the driving reason he's doing it is because he's taking them from slavery that they might come out and be worshipers. That's his stated purpose. He told Moses, go to the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship me. 
So the reason they're going from bondage and slavery is so that they might come out on the other side and be full-time worshipers of God, freed to live a life with God, free to enjoy him, not to be under oppression any longer. And you know this already, but this right here is a small picture. That what was happening on, on a physical scale was pointing to what would happen on a spiritual scale. So they were freed literally from physical bondage to come out here into physical freedom. But it was ultimately about a spiritual picture that you and I would be freed from the bondage of sin, freed from the, the bondage of slavery, free, freed from the devil himself, that we might be freed up to become full-time worshipers of God. Now, where we are presently in that journey is right here. We've been freed. We know we've been freed from the power of sin, but we're not yet here over in heaven where we're full-time worshipers. And so we're kind of in this land right here where we're, ooh, don't want to go here. Sometimes I want to go here. And we're in this mix. And so we sense his nearness, but we also miss his nearness. And in Exodus 32, God has taken them out. They're right at this place. They're not yet to the promised land, but they're not in slavery either. They've only been freed for a couple of months. They don't know how to really act as a people yet. They don't know how to to do this whole thing. And so God takes Moses, he puts him up on a mountain and he gives him specific instructions about how it is that God wants to be worshiped. Now, Exodus 28, I think it's 14, tells us how long Moses is gone. He has gone for 40 days on here. So for 40 days, he's been up on this mountain and the people now are starting to get nervous. And this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings And brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The people see that Moses is gone, and the people begin to panic. They know that the presence of God has been removed from their camp. He had been going with them, and now that God himself and his appointed leader are off, they panic. Do you panic when you don't sense his nearness? Because what they do then is they try to take matters into their own hands. They're now going to fashion an idol. They're going to create something that is made in the image of God. And God has said before, this is wrong. You can't do this. You cannot create an image of me. You can't capture the image of the invisible. Only God himself can make an image of the invisible. Only God can come down to earth to show us what he looks like. They were trying so desperately to hang on to something tangible because when I don't sense that he's there... I don't know what to do. Moses is gone. God is gone. So the people then go to the priest. They go to the priest and say, make us a God. Make us an animal that we can look at. Now, I don't think we should take this in light of them saying that there was some other foreign pagan God that they wanted to worship. What they were trying to do was to to make this image here something that they knew was God. They weren't mistaking it for God himself. 
They just wanted something there in their presence that they could see, feel, touch, be near. And so the priest gives in to the people. The priest who knows better. The priest who knows this is a direct violation of the commands that God had given to Moses. He knows this is wrong, and yet he does it anyway. They take the gold, the blessings that God had given to them. This gold is the very gold they had gotten as they had taken plunder from Egypt. The people from Egypt, when they were releasing them in slavery, gave them so much stuff. And so they have this gold right now. And so they're taking the blessings of God so they can form it into the presence of God. They had mistaken his blessings for his presence. They assumed that if his blessing was not what they wanted, so they take that which God had given them and they form that into that. Now, I won't walk you through everything, but what happens next, I don't want to mention in front of children. It turns into a celebration that is, um, it's just awful. It's all done in the name of worship. Aaron, I think, the way we should understand this, Aaron understands that what's happening is not right. And so he decides to do something makeshift at the end. And so he says, well, let me just make an altar. And so he makes an altar to try to make up for it. And the Lord said to Moses, verse seven, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is ticked. God is ticked because they chose not to trust his word. His word was, I will be with you. I will go before you. I will bring you into this land. I will fight for you. They watched this miracle after miracle after miracle as God did some incredible things. He he drowned an entire army, the most powerful army on the earth at that time by putting them in the sea. All the people uh, went across on dry ground. God had shown up over and again and they chose not to trust his word. They chose to look around and trust only that which they could see and feel. God is ticked. And God says, Moses, move out of the way so that I can consume them. Now, I have to confess, if I were Moses here, this would be awfully tempting. Uh, Okay, these people that have been whining and complaining, acting like four-year-olds from the time that we left, after all this provision that you've given, the people that are constantly against me, they wanted to stone me on on an occasion, they wanted to, 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 to replace me. You want me just simply to move out of the way so that you can wipe them out, justified, and you're sovereign. You can do all that, and then all I have to do is wait here, and you're gonna make a great nation out of me? I like the way you're talking, God. Moses. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn 
from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Remember, God was the one that said, move out of the way. These people that you brought up out of Egypt, I'm gonna wipe them out. Moses says, oh, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was not my leadership. It was not my ingenuity. I didn't build all this. It was your work. I know this is a quick side note. I know some of us are tempted to believe that Randy Pope built a great church. I know what Randy would tell you. He didn't build jack squat. He's just a guy that followed the Lord. It was the Lord that has built this. Now it's the Lord that's continuing to build his kingdom. It's the Lord that has always built his kingdom. It has always been the Lord who has brought them out. And Moses passed this little mini test from God. It wasn't me, it was you. Moses acts like a priest right now. The priest who was there decided to give in to the people and to just make this thing happen. And, 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 and now he intercedes on behalf of the people. Oh, God, remember who you are. Remember who we are. Remember what you can do. Remember what we can't do. Remember how sufficient you are. Remember how insufficient we are. Oh, God, please, we need. He asks God to change his mind. And look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There have been many theologians that have done a much better job of explaining this than I can in 30 seconds. But let me say this. The scripture says that God changed his mind. That's what the word relent means. Now, I think what's happening is God is condescending towards us to give us language that we can understand. But I don't want to not press this far enough because the scriptures say it. And so what this tension is and this balance, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't think I can fully explain it. On the one hand, it seems as though God responded to the prayer of Moses. And had Moses not interceded on behalf of the people, the people would have been wiped out. And on the other hand, simultaneously, not a contradiction, simultaneously true. I don't understand it, but God had mapped this out all along from the beginning. God had mapped it out so that Moses would pray. And now here's why I think this is the case. It's because I don't really think this is primarily about Moses. I don't think this is primarily about this guy as an interceder. I think that what Moses is giving us indication here, Moses may not even be fully aware of this. God, being the author of Scripture, is fully aware of what he's doing. He's giving us a picture of what is to come. There would be another who would intercede on behalf of the people. Skip down all the way to verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Moses comes down with these tablets. These tablets were the ones that God had taken his finger and he had inscribed in there. This was the covenant relationship that was laid out. There were stipulations in this covenant. God was entering into a relationship with his people and it was all mapped out right here. It's these 10 words. 
And, and here Moses comes down and when he hears, he sees this and Joshua's there by side. Joshua makes a comment about it. When he comes down, it says that Moses' anger burns against the people because of their sin. Their utter lack of trust, their lack of faith in God. Trying to take matters into their own hands. Trying to create an image of the invisible. All of this. And he throws these tablets down right in front of them and they break. And I don't think that we should take this as this is a, a, a moment for Moses where his anger got the best of him. I think Moses is doing this intentionally. This covenant relationship, you have broken. And it's symbolic. Your sin is heavy. I love this about Moses right now. We live in a day and age in which it is not popular to tell people they sin. Moses said, you're sinning. The people understand it. God brings about great judgment upon them. Skip all the way down to verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for you. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses tells him, you've sinned a great sin, but perhaps I can make atonement. It's not a guarantee. What I will do, though, is I will go before the Lord on your behalf, and I will plead with him. And the way that it's written originally in the original language, which is Hebrew, is so beautiful and it is so awkward. And they maintained it here in our English translation, which is fantastic. But look there again closely at verse 32. But now if you will forgive their sin, and it's like he doesn't know what to say. If you will, uh, but if not, then please blot me out of your book that you have written. Oh, the leader who had led them to this place right here, who had, they had done nothing but berate him. At every turn, they complained, they whined, they moaned. They, They did nothing for Moses. And Moses right now is pleading on behalf of the people who are guilty, who are not even for Moses. What kind of a leader is that? Reminds me of another leader. And that we, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not really about Moses. It's pointing to a better Moses. Why? Look at the next sentence. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Here's what he's saying. Moses, you are insufficient to take the sins of the people. You can't do it. Oh, Moses' heart is great. Oh, God, please forgive them. Oh, we hear the same thing from Paul in Romans when he's crying this out. God, would you please do this? And God says, nope. Everyone pays for their own sins. There's only one person who can take the sins of all. And that has to be a perfect person. And Moses, that ain't you. 
Verse 34, but now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. God tells them, I will send a representative of me to you. But it ain't going to be me. Verse 30, I'm sorry, chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart. It's a powerful word. Go, leave. Leave what? Go up from here where you've been meeting with me, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out all the ites. Go up to a land. (laughs) Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But. I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. Now let this sink in. Moses, you can have it. You can have everything that you have been dreaming of. Everything that you long for, you can have it. Your heart's desire, you'll be fully satisfied in in an intellectual. Everything that you want that you could see, smell, feel, taste, or touch, it can all be there. You can go into houses that you didn't have to build. You can eat from from farms that you didn't have to work on. It is all going to be blessings beyond your wildest comprehension are going to be there. You can have it, but I'm not going. I meet with a group of guys on Thursday nights and and, uh, part of this thought came to me when we did this several, uh, it was probably 10, 12, I, I don't know. Could have been three years ago, but I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 months to 13 months. I don't even know why I chose those numbers. Just a while back, I was talking to these guys about this particular passage. And the thought has been coming to me um, ever since then. And, and that is, I wonder, I wonder what I would choose if I were Moses. Let me ask it to you this way. What if God were to come to you today and to say, you can have heaven. You can be in a place where there's going to be no sin. There's no pain. There's prosperity for everyone. There is no sense of injustice. There are no have-nots. There are only haves. Everyone is in harmony with one another. You can have it all. But I don't come with it. Would you take it? I've wondered in my own life if if I were in Moses' shoes and the thought of not having to maintain the relationship with God, the thought of not having to submit myself to the Lordship of Christ, to not have to bow the knee of submission to him, not have to abide by his wishes, would it be worth it for me to, to take everything that my heart longs for and to be made great in the eyes of all the people around where the whole world would look in on me and they would see me sitting up high on my throne, but I didn't have God, would that be worth it? And because I'm a pastor, because I have to give talks like this, I know that my first thought should be, oh, no, 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 I, would, that, I, no, I wouldn't be tempted by that at all. I just want to be with the Lord. But I know when I search what's really there, oh, that's very attractive to me. 
My flesh really likes that a lot, especially the part about me being made into a great nation. Me being viewed by everyone else around me as great and mighty and powerful and wonderful. That's attractive. All without having to submit to Christ. But at the end of the day, you and I know what our souls long for the most is not the blessings of God, but the presence of God. Judith and I are dealing with this on a personal level even right now. We're we're trying to think through some things. In October, I was speaking at a retreat down in, uh, in the booming metropolis of Dublin, Georgia. And so I'm hanging out there and Judith took the kids up to Rome, Georgia for the day. And so um, somewhere around 24, 28 hours into nobody being at our house, um, Judith returned. And when she returned, um, there was water that was pouring out of our kitchen cabinet. And it was all into our kitchen floor, which was Pergo soaking the stuff up and into the press board cabinets, which is also soaking this up. And so it's just swelling. It went into our Berber carpet in the living room and it smells like wet dog uh, in our house. It was beautiful. And so when I make my phone call to let her know I'm going to be much later than I thought I was, she's explaining this to me. And I said, okay, well, we got to call the insurance company first thing in the morning. And so they came out and they got these big, huge fans that are blowing and, and you can barely hear, but you know, it's drying stuff out, which is great. And so after about five or six days of that, the insurance company comes out and they start get, telling us what's going to happen in the process. And they're going to give us this quote. And so this quote takes place. And so for about a month and a half, we are living in, in our house and we have no kitchen floor. Um, in there, it's just, you know, the concrete and, uh, and, and our carpet is now dry, you know, so it now smells like dry dog. I'm um, in there as opposed to, I don't even know what that smells like. And, and so we have no kitchen sink. And, and so we're using, you know, to clean out stuff. I'm <laughs> taking it outside in the faucet and um, it was, it was fun. Um, our kids' chores looked very different than what they had been before that. Uh, and so the insurance company comes back with this number and they give us the figure that it is that it's going to take to fix all this. And I said, great, I'm going to gather some guys around me that know what they're doing. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to home repairs of any sort. And so I'm going to gather some guys and we'll put all this together. And because for me, the primary issue was not really the kitchen. It was saving the money so that we could go and fix our bathroom. All right, our bathroom has mold in it. It's got a design flaw. There was never a, a, a fan that was placed in there. So since 1992, all the showers had been taking place in there. have just kind of gathered all this moisture and it's gone to the windows and single pane windows and cold weather. You, see, you get the picture. The doctors have told us, every doctor that we've uh, met with have told us that they think this is a um, significant tr- contributing factor to Judah's health issues. For three years, her, she's had significant health issues, autoimmune stuff. So for me, getting the bathroom fixed was the higher priority. We took out some money to, to put windows in the back of our house to get rid of the, the in, our, in our bedroom to get rid of that mold, but we just never had the money to fix this. And so when the insurance company came back, I'm doing the numbers in my head. I'm doing them on paper. I'm calling some folks that have some experience here, and they're saying, I think we can get it done for this, that, and the other. And, and here's the only thing I know to tell you is God showed up. And, and, and that money has somehow or another stretched. And I don't get this. I still don't get it to this moment. I'm not just getting a new kitchen floor and cabinets. I'm getting a new floor on the whole bottom of our house, except for the bedrooms where we wanted to maintain the carpet that is not doggish in there. The, the whole, we're getting new cabinets out of this. They're finishing out the windows in our house. There's a new fire mantle place-esque thing there that's wood and it's going to have stone. And then our, our bathroom has been gutted and they started over. And they're putting the proper sheetrock in there now. 
And, and sometime in January, our expectation is, is that we will be able to move back into there. In the meantime, we're staying with a gracious family that has just opened their, their home to us. Um, unbelievable. They, they've told us, you stay as long as you need to stay. Now, all of this happened not as a result of mine and Judah's faithfulness. Not as a result of our prayers. Not as a result of our obedience. Not as a, in fact, it's in spite of that. For some reason, God just chose in his goodness to drop down in time and space and to say, I am going to bless you. You can call it luck. You can call it good fortune. You can call it miscalculation of an insurance company. You can call it whatever you want to call it. In mine and Judas' mind, there's only one word for it, and that's blessing from God. And we've been wondering here in the last week, would we be just as grateful before God because we wake up every morning and go to bed every night just, I mean, thanking God for this blessing in disguise that was all from a bad valve. Would we be just as grateful to God if he were to tell us, you can have your old house with me or you can have a new house without me. Which would we rather have? I think what he's doing is giving me the option, you can have a new house with me if you'll pursue me. What would you do? What would you do if you were given the option? When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oribon, where the people knew they got it. They they understood. If we go forward without God, this is going to be miserable. Verse 7, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his own tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. It almost seems like this is an accidental statement in here from Moses that he's just kind of putting in. I don't think it is, though. Instead of the tent being in the center of the camp, we should not confuse this particular tent with the tabernacle. They're two different places. Instead of being in the center of the community where God would reside, that would be his permanent dwelling, which there was not yet there, that facility. He is now removed and his presence has gone over to the side. And Moses sets up a tent right over here. And Moses would walk into this tent. And right when he would get in, the cloud would come down and God would speak to him face to face. And the people would all stand over in the community. They would turn this direction. and They would worship where they are. And Moses would come in and he would be with God. And anyone who had a need would come and they would ask of Moses. They couldn't get to God directly. They had to go through Moses in order to get to God. And so tell us what God's saying. So they would come to Moses and Moses would would seek the Lord. And Joshua, Joshua would just lean by the tent. Ah, 
just, just had to be near the presence of God, anything to get closer. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. If I have found favor in your sight, then God, show me your ways. Now, this is beautiful. He does not say, show me your ways that I may put into practice all the wise and wonderful ways of living that I may prosper. He was already guaranteed prosperity. He didn't say, show me your ways so that we may be made great among the nations. They were already guaranteed they would be made great among the nations. He says, show me your ways so that I may know. In order to find favor in your sight, consider to this nation as your people. And and, and God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, here's what you got to know. What God says now is, Moses, my presence will go with you. Singular. My presence will go with you, Moses. He does not say his presence will go with the rest of the people. Look at Moses' response. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? He says, God, that's not enough. It's not enough that you'll just go with me. I need you to go with us. If you don't go with us, then do not send us. He was so in tune with that which mattered the most. That was the most important thing was not all the goodies. It was God. And it wasn't just God for him. It was God for all of the people. Oh, what a mediator. And then God says, this is where we close verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. The very thing that you've asked me to do, Moses, I will do. I will go with you. Why is this story in the Bible? Why did God put this in here for you and I to munch on, to see? Was it just for some December 30th sermon? I think it's in here to show us at least two things. There's many things we could list, but I want to just briefly walk you through two reasons. One, God's presence comes only through a mediator. The presence of God comes only through the work of a mediator. Remember Aaron, the priest, what we didn't read in here was the fact that Aaron actually threw the people under the bus when, 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 when Moses asked him the explanation for what happened. Um, uh, Aaron says, oh, it was just all these people. It was their fault. And I just put this gold in and out came this calf. I don't know how it happened. It's amazing. The priest throws the people up under the bus. What does Moses do? He prays on their behalf. He intercedes for the people. Moses does on a small scale what Jesus does on a grand scale. Moses saved the people from temporary destruction. Jesus saves us from eternal destruction. 
Jesus is the one who went before the father and said, father, I will pay the price. To this very moment right now, Jesus lives to intercede on behalf of his people. At this very moment right now, he is interceding on your behalf. Moses was insufficient to take the price of the people. Jesus was sufficient to take the price of the people. Moses wanted to stave off God's judgment temporarily. Jesus stays off God's judgment eternally for the people. Jesus is the better Moses in this. God works through a mediator. His presence comes to them through one person. His favor was given to Moses. And he said, my presence will go with you. It wasn't really about Moses. God's favor is given to Jesus. And all those who have submitted their lives to the Lordship of Christ now have the presence of God. Not because you and I do something right. Not because we don't do something wrong. We get the presence of God solely because the favor of God resides on Jesus. And when Jesus is with us, God's presence comes to us. In spite of your sin. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor principality, nothing. So today you may not feel his presence, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you have his presence. The second thing. Now for us uh, uh, this morning, I forgot. The presence of God is the greatest and ultimate blessing of God. Please let this sink in. The presence of God is the greatest and ultimate blessing of God. Can I ask you a question? Do your prayers reflect this? When you find yourself praying, what is it you're praying for? When I think about the way that I pray for my children, I don't know that this is the highest priority for me personally. I'm having to to ask God to adjust my heart in this because what comes naturally for me is to pray for God to bless my children. I want God to remove the, 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 the picking that happens with one of my children. I want God to remove that from him so that my child will not be picked on anymore. I want God to, to, to swoop down and to put brains into my kids. I know that sounds bad at first. But to put, uh, put, put, put in them this ability to think wisely so that they can make good grades and get into a good college so they can have a good job and provide a lot for their families. When I think about how it is that I pray, I'm praying far more often that God will bless me. I'm not necessarily praying that God would do whatever he needs to do so that I might know him intimately. All of this stuff will be gone. Eternal life is knowing him. Do do your prayers reflect that right now? Does your work reflect that right now? Does your relationships reflect that right now? God's greatest and ultimate blessing is his presence. I want to give you just three real quick challenges. For 2013, I would love for you and I to repent and to turn. Repent from replacing the blessings of God or or the presence of God with the blessings of God. Pursuing his blessings more than we pursue his presence. Repent of that, but don't turn to a system. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is the one that will change us. Jesus is the one that will satisfy us. Jesus is the one that will conform us and make us into what we need to be. So pursue Jesus in these three ways. First, read a portion of God's word every day for the next 30 days. Now, the goal here is not just to do something for 30 days and then put it aside. The goal is that we would establish a lifestyle, a habit there. But I want us to take the next 30 days just to taste and see that the Lord is good. Outside of here, even outside of our, um, uh, whatever we call this place, this building, 
uh, and you'll find a reading schedule that Proner put together years ago. It's a two-year reading schedule. Just take the 30 days of that and read it. Also up online at perimeter.org, you'll find a PDF of that exact document right there that you can get a hold of, and you can take those 30 days, uh, and you can take that reading schedule and apply it for the next 30 days. Read to get to know God. Don't read primarily for instructions on how to live. Secondly, pray. Take a portion of every day and just pray. Pray like a child would approach his father. Come to him with everything. You're not just to tell him about your day. Come to tell him about your wants, your needs, your desires, etc. Come as a child would come to their father and just lay your request before, before God. Don't pray necessarily um, for anything other than just to get to know him primarily though. And then the last one, unless providentially hindered, commit to being at all four Sunday morning worship services in the month of January. Maybe that's here, maybe that's somewhere else. But when you come, seek to meet with God and seek to meet with God's people. Just taste and see. Taste and see if pursuing him isn't what it is that your soul really is. It's after. I promise you it is. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you would um, undo all of the flaws that I have. Um, Anything that was said for me that's not true, just wipe it away. Lord, the truth of your word, though, we want to be embedded so deeply within our souls that we would become doers of your word, not just hearers only. Thank you, Jesus, for all this in your name. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.